The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudarman and I'm joined by my colleague in London, Maya Powinska Sims, who's back from holiday. Maya, welcome back. Thanks, Arun. Good to be back. It's great to have you back. You've missed um, a lot, I guess. Yeah, well, I, you always think popping off for a couple of weeks in August, it's all going to be quiet, but it, it seems to have all kicked off while I was uh, sunning myself. So, yeah, it's, I've been things, catching up. Things are kicking off in the industry. <laughs> they are. It's been busy. It's been a busy couple of weeks. Lots to talk about. It's been a, yeah, there's, it's been a busy summer, I feel. Um, I mean, it, we, it's, it's, it's become one of those old chestnuts that you say, oh, it's going to slow down in the summer. And then it never really seems to slow down as much as you think it might. Yes, no, um, this is true. This summer has been particularly busy. Um, so maybe, yeah, maybe we'll talk through some of those things. Yeah, let's do that. So um, where should we start? <laughs> where should we start? <laughs> where should we start? Let's start with... Uh, let's start with what some what's going on at some of the big agencies. There's there's uh, there's a lot of moves around, a lot of big stuff happening. Um, should we start with Edelman? What's been going on there? Yeah, um, interesting question. I mean, I think people who observe the industry uh, will not be massively surprised um, whenever there's you know, senior departures from Edelman oh. or, 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 or big name hires. Um, I mean, we've, we have written about this before. Richard Edelman has, you know, he's gone on the record with us as saying that he likes organized chaos. There's always a kind of sort of feeling of that, you know, that a certain level of turbulence is, it's almost required to oh. drive that agency forward. And, you know, it has been, probably the, the best performing PR agency of the last 15 years. Um, but yeah, some, some big departures recently. I think last week we reported that uh, global brand chair Mark Renshaw had stepped down. I think that was a bit of a surprise. He was one of the big flagship um, hires from the ad industry, uh, Leo Burnett veteran. Um, then it, it emerged that John Clinton uh, had, had left the agency at the end of June. And that, I think, was, I don't know, in some respects, that was even more surprising because John was, um, he was one of the first hires from Adland and he was seen as one of the people that had really helped to kind of usher in this shift to Edelman, mm. um, you know, towards, I guess, what you'd describe as, you know, up, upstream creative strategy. Um, so, so two interesting departures, um, and I guess you probably have to put it against the backdrop at Edelman of slower growth mm. over the last couple of years. You know, this is an agency that uh, we had. You know, I used to compare Edelman to the Chinese economy, um, where you know you could you could bank on it growing eight to twelve percent a year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
much like the Chinese economy, that's no longer the case. <laughs> well, I guess there's, there's a there's a you know there's a there's a different slant between organised chaos and that kind of mm. uh, shifting energy when times are good and when times are slowed down. It kind of takes on a different colour, I guess. So you look Absolutely. at it differently. It's like is this is this part of their recipe for success as it has been in the past, or is this the result of things slowing down? It's it feels like something's a bit different mm. this year for Edelman. Yeah, I mean, it, it. you know, you can see it as a high-risk strategy. Um, but, you know, I, I'd, I would say I'd, I'd applaud them to an extent for, for, for being willing to take those kinds of mm. risks. Um, Edelman, Richard Edelman, has been, you know, has, has been very vocal about how they have attempted to make this transformation towards an agency that can, that can do the full range of marketing communication services, um, you know, hiring 600 creatives and planners. Um, but that can throw up some real challenges, yeah. some real cultural challenges as well. And we've asked Richard this question before, is, is the slower growth, you know, is that a result of the changes that have been made or, or is it down to, you know, more, more macro economic yeah. um, issues is it down to, to market forces Richard of course has said it's down to market forces he doesn't of course understandably understandably doesn't want to suggest that that their strategy is 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 the reason for it but you know that question I think is, is still one that's worth asking yeah I think there's a big there's a there's a big it's part of a big conversation isn't it whether it's market forces or not the the whole the whole agency model and the search for the the search for the perfect big agency model is just rumbling on and on and it's like there's always going to be yeah there's always going to be churn at a senior level and we've got all the all the you know lots of ex-Burson people floating around post Burson Conan mm. Wolf sorting out its leadership globally now as we've announced but there's a there's another point which is that, that you know to your cultural point what bringing in all the creatives and planners does that work doesn't it work who goes who stays it's it's like we're in a period of all the big agencies and to a certain extent, some of the mid-sizes are wrestling with are wrestling with what a successful, profitable agency looks like, and there's it. It, it feels like everything's in a big state of flux at the moment. I'm not sure anyone's really even got close to to working out what the right answer is yet. Yeah, I think that is correct. I mean, it, you know, we the word transformation is bandied around a lot. It and I is. Think what we're seeing is <laughs> Is agencies grappling with that? I mean, the, the, the ultimate goal here, I guess, is that these agencies, especially at the bigger end of the spectrum, want to compete for these marketing budgets, mm. which are typically much bigger than communications budgets. Um, and to do that, I think they've correctly identified that they need to be able to provide much more than, than you know, the kind of earned media yeah. services that have driven them. Um, but you know, there's more to it than just the skills. There's 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 being able to have, you know there's there's the relationships with CMOS. Um, there's being able to, to speak the right language in, in the right places, and I think many of the agencies are still grappling with that mm -hmm. challenge. I think Edelman, unsurprisingly, has been the most advanced in its efforts to make that leap um, because. You know, as I think as an independent agency, it's always been able to invest more yeah. than its publicly held peers. It, it did that to really su successful 
um, to really successful effect when it came to digital investment, probably around a decade ago. Uh, and I think it's, it's tried to replicate that formula here mm. uh, when it comes to hiring creators and planners. Um, understandably, you know, I think it probably thought, okay, we can, we can use the same formula um, and move out ahead of our rivals. Mm. Uh, but it hasn't been, at least from the outside, it, it doesn't seem to have been as smooth a ride um, as its kind of as as its extension into digital capabilities was um, all those years ago. No, and it'll be interesting to see how it pans out. That whole kind of bol- the understanding of the need for creatives and planners, and how you go about mm. bringing them into company. It'll be interesting to see how. And we've seen in the last couple of weeks, Webersham went buying that lot. David Schneider's big social creative agency. BCW buying digital creative agency HZ, so you know, bolting on two hundred creatives to the company. It'll be very interesting to see how, you know, whether that does become enmeshed and truly part of the. I know it's a terrible phrase; it's always banded around the kind of the DNA of the agency. Whether it truly does become more than earned in all three cases, or or whether that is always going to be a little bit of a a clash of cultures, whether it's ever possible yeah. to, to make a PR agency into much more than a PR agency, whether we should be trying to do that. So I think in the next the over the next year or so or two, or maybe even longer than that, whether that works as a way of mm-hmm. getting those marketing budgets, I think is is massively up for debate at the moment. I hope it does. Yeah. I really hope it does. I mean, I hope that's I hope that's part of the answer. Um, but uh, it'll be interesting yeah. to see because these are big investments, and will they pay off? Yeah, I mean, it's a great point you mentioned the clash of cultures, and I think that's the thing that agencies often underestimate, um, and we see that time and again. And of course, the bigger the agency, the harder the cultural challenges. Mm. Um, because you know, it's, it's. I think it's it's easier when you have a twenty-person agency to make a fundamental change yeah. than it is with a two-thousand-person agency. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that the cultural challenge is really hard. I mean, changing DNA <laughs> is very hard. Mm. Um, you know, from a from a biological standpoint, absolutely. it's very hard. <laughs> it's yeah, so. almost impossible, in fact. Um, Nothing to suggest it will be easier for agencies. And the other thing I'd say on that is I still feel like we have not seen any really tangible examples of an agency um, really cornering a marketing budget and, and, and being handed the keys to brand building. I mean, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but no, I, I, still, I don't think we have. I, I still think it's more aspirational than than um, than real. Yeah, I I would agree with you. It does feel like we're kind of getting closer, but it it doesn't feel like the industry is anywhere there yet. I mean, I don't know how much of it, 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 I don't know how much of this PR believes, you know, it's like, it does feel a bit like we're trying, we're trying this approach now. But um, yeah. yeah, it's gonna it's, yeah. it's interest, interesting times, as they say. I mean, are we any closer? That's the question, mm. really. You know, and no one wants to admit that after all these investments, um, we're not. Yeah. Well, do you know what? Uh, one you know, of the you, one you, of the things that came up a lot in the responses from uh, our influence a hundred 
survey mm. and research is you know it, it's it's a pretty unique thing it's pretty neat you can't qualify unique obviously it's a unique thing in that we have you know conversations with a hundred of the leading CMOs and CCOs for the biggest brands mm. around the world and one of the things that came back in a lot of their their responses to our survey, which goes into quite a lot of depth about what they're thinking and feeling about PR agencies. And one of the things that came up about, we asked the first time this year, what frustrates you about this industry and what frustrates you about the agencies you're working with? And the lack of confidence uh, came up time and again, which I wasn't particularly surprised by, but it's, you know, it's been noted by the clients that PR doesn't necessarily have that self-confidence in its own abilities it's almost you know that it, it's talking the talk but it's like how much do you believe that you you're you know, you know clients are like yeah. horses aren't they they can smell when you, you're not really feeling it um so uh yeah. yeah it's it's been an issue i mean for as long as i've been covering this industry i'm sure for as long as you've been covering this industry yeah. as well uh this idea that public relations people just don't have the swagger that you see from people in advertising. <laughs> That's such a good word. So yeah, but it is true, and I, I can kind of understand where it comes from because when you're dealing with, let's say, high-level media relations, um, it often doesn't pay um, to, to have that kind of swagger. Mm. Sometimes, you know, it, it is more useful to have a, a, a level of humility, and that kind of plays better in that arena. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you, you so know, I can, you get I can understand it, but you know, as someone, you know, I just remember when I covered advertising. Um, if you were to say to an ad agency, "Can you do something?" They would always just say yes, mm. you know, and just figure out a price. I mean, whereas I always <laughs> feel like with PR agencies, you know, they'll have like a whole, there'll be a lot of soul searching will go on and. And but, then maybe they'll come back and say no. I mean, it's, it's, it's a totally different attitude. It is a different attitude. Yeah. And I think a lot, I, I, and I don't think that's, you know, as you said, that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. It's kind of a double-edged sword because the PR mm. and earns deals with stuff that is so much more complex and layered and nuanced than mm. paid for the most part. That, uh, mm. you know, it, there's almost quite a lot of an intellectual exercise goes on in working out how to... Uh, approach a brief and how to how to do things it's you know there's it's a very much more of a 360 look that the 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 best practitioners in this industry can provide which is why they're yeah i mean should we so send valuable. something up the thames upstream or downstream <laughs> it's not all about seeing something up the thames we know this <laughs> Yeah, it's it's always downstream as well. Anyway. It's so, always yeah, downstream. Um, yeah. Anyway, it's me. It's me trying to big up the PR industry as being full of no, uh, creative right. intellectuals. No, you're right. I'm, I'm being flippant, but no, but you are right. You are right. You're making a very good point. I think, which is that there is there are good reasons why you don't. You know, that level of brashness um, is is not necessarily inculcated into the PR industry. But I guess it's a, sometimes it's a weakness. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Sometimes it's sometimes it's a, a weakness, and sometimes it's a strength. And that's something that's is probably never going to change, no matter how many creatives and planners you bolt onto your core operation. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you talk to a lot of 
creatives and planners who are in the industry. So mm. do I. I. I always feel there's a level of discontent um, amongst their ranks. Like they're not really, they feel like they're not really understood. Mm. You know, they're just, they're kind of refugees from a, from a different planetary system. Yeah. Yeah. There's so, I do. I, you know, I've, I've, I, I've seen this a lot actually that the, the creative spirit of a you know an ad somebody who's been brought in from an a more of an ad creative background coming into a PR agency it is literally like moving to a different country you know the language is different mm. um the the environment's different the goals are different the time scales are different um uh-huh. and actually creative is not always the solution to a to a to a comms or reputational or, or business issue it isn't always creative so it's not ever going to be you know just because you've got a massive data planning and uh, creative department doesn't necessarily mean that's always going to be the solution um mm. I, I think there's a danger that because it's such a big investment everything then goes like let's let's get the creatives in sometimes it's not about the creative sometimes it is about something a little bit more subtle than that yeah, and I still feel like a lot of times the creatives are there for business development in many of the cases, and defining their role, actually kind of really formalizing it across everything an agency does, probably still an ongoing challenge. Mm. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, c- compared to an ad agency structure where it's really clear, you know, everything revolves around the creative. Um, so it's, it's, it is it is, it is like a different country, a different yeah. planet. Um but you know, we 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 hope, I guess, to see progress. Um, yeah. So, and you, you mentioned um, Burson Cohen and Wolf. I guess that's probably, you know, that, that that's the biggest story of the year. That continues mm. to rumble on. Um, the acquisition of HZ, uh, d- departures, which were, you know, not unexpected at all. I think everyone knew once Cohen and Wolf took over Burson Marcella that a number of people from the Burson side would leave. Mm. Um, and, and that has transpired. We've seen senior people in, in um, North America, in Europe and in Asia leave. I don't think it's any huge surprise. I think uh, Conan, uh, Burson Conan will see uh, Donna Imperato is, you know, finalizing her global leadership team seems to be pretty much in place now. Yeah. Um, the mergers are are, <laughs> are not without pain, and this is, of course, the biggest merger we've seen in the PR industry. So there will be some pain, but uh, I, I, you know, it's going to be a while before we can say with any measure of certainty how successful this effort has been. Mm. Oh gosh, I th- yeah, this is going to take ages. I mean, uh, Emir President Scott Wilson is still finalising the last couple of uh, country leadership. Post and you know mm. to his point when I spoke to him uh, in depth about the how the whole Emir structure was was going to pan out the the biggest challenge there is not, actually I mean there's quite a lot of Burson people in market leadership positions so you know that's that's of note so it hasn't it's not like Conan Wolf is the is Conan Wolf people are are Europe, just being plugged in everywhere East. across Europe in particular, yeah. but um, Europe, Middle East, yeah, uh, yes, exactly. But I mean, to Scott's point, going back to our thing about culture and DNA, the biggest challenge is not not just 
you know, it's a big challenge in merging two offices in a territory where there's been or a, a region or a, um, an area where there's been a Burson office and a Conan Wolf office. That's a big challenge. But he said, actually, a bigger challenge is what does what does BCW mean where there was only a Burson Marstella office? How do you mm. create a BCW culture where you're not actually merging two companies. So it's kind of less tangible on the ground that something's changed. So, um, you know, maybe not, not a lot has changed in a particular market. So how, how do you turn that from being Burson Marstella to BCW when you haven't got that, you know, the whole whole load of Conan Wolf people, you know, coming into your office? Um, so I think that's, that's going to be, you know, just purely on the cultural point, I think, um, that's going to be very interesting to see how successful that is. That that BCW has its own identity. I mean, it's, it's the, the the whole rollout of a new social and digital presence, identity logo. You know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we still haven't seen any of that, really. Well, that's we? going to be that's a good couple of months away still, I reckon. And yeah. until that happens, and then we're looking at you know practically a year since the the announcement and it's just been you know year one has just been kind of getting ducks in a row effectively so it won't be until yeah it won't be until you know end of 2019 that we'll have any idea whether this is has worked or not yeah but i think that kind of plays to donna's strengths as well in Ooh. a way because we know i mean one thing we know is that donna's just you know she's very good at at growing agency businesses absolutely and given that the P&Ls are going to be kept separate this year uh, and then they'll combine next year. Um, I'd be surprised if there isn't significant growth in 2019. Um, yeah. And, you know, even just looking at this year, it's it's moving quickly. Um, there's definitely no sense that um, things are being allowed to drift there. So... Um, no, and I think clients I think, are interested as well. You know, from what um, I gather, there's quite a lot of you know, re requests for the, the new BCW to be involved in, in very big pitches globally at the moment. You know, the clients are interested in what the combined entity has got to offer. Um, so, yeah, I think they're going to yeah. pick up. I think, I mean, you know, that the old non-disclosure agreements are a, a pain for agencies and for us because it's, you know, it's not always possible to find out who's doing what uh, as it was in the olden days but um i'd be very surprised if we don't have some quite big announcements in terms of new client wins globally over the next few months as well mm, okay well keep us posted <laughs> I, I will do when my moles provide the information <laughs> excellent so what else is going on what else is going on? Um, race points, but there's a, there's stuff mm. going on there. Larry Weber's back at the helm. Are they cutting? Aren't they cutting? Yeah. Mark Jackson's out in China. It's like there's a lot of um, there's a lot going on there. What do you think's the, yeah, the situation? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, Race Point is a you know it's it's an agency that maybe isn't as well known as some of the ones we've talked about. Um, uh, quite a tech-focused business, uh, merged with a sister agency a few years ago, a digital firm, which I think took it up to around, I think, around 30, um, at least 30 million in revenue. Mm. Um, but global CEO Peter Prodromo, who'd been with the firm for a long time, uh, departed at the beginning of summer, and Larry Weber has stepped back in 
as CEO. I don't know if that's a long-term thing. I'd be surprised if they didn't find mm. um, if they weren't if they didn't find another CEO because I think um, you know Larry is, is he's got the holding group to look after. Uh, they have private equity investment as well, so I suspect there are there are probably people, there are some questions there about what the long-term goals for um, for Racepoint and for for its owner. Uh, I think it's W2 Group, what, what the long-term goals are. I think whenever the CEO leaves, you expect a measure um, of change, and, and that that may be what's happened with with Mark Jackson in Greater China. I mm. mean, Racepoint has a strong relationship with Huawei in this part of the world. Um, so I think you know they'll be, they'll be very keen to, to uh, manage that and ensure there's no disruption there. Um, but I guess it's it's um, you know it, it probably speaks to to you know broadly to these changes that we're seeing across the industry. You know that Racepoint is an agency that started life as a as a sort of classic tech PR shop, has mm. merged with digital, um, broadened its offering, you know, broadened its global footprint, um, and as it's kind of seeking that kind of accelerated growth, um, has perhaps run, run into some challenges on the way. Yeah, I you know again that's going to be another another one to watch over the next six to twelve months, isn't it? And I would be I, I totally agree with you. I'd be very surprised if if Larry Weber is uh, assuming that he's you know he's back there in, for the long term. It feels like he's there to kind of steady the ship, set it back on course, uh, find yeah. somebody else. Presumably, it's probably possibly somebody from ex Burson or Edelman who's floating around in the market at the moment. Um, to, to steer it, it's like a roundabout, isn't it? This industry, um, yeah, and uh, so, and set it back yeah. on course because you know they've got they've got a good offer clearly, um, and it's just sort of you know maybe it's just gone astray a little bit. Yeah, I mean it, it's had it's had a tough time as well in the US. Um, don't know if you're familiar, but it had this this fraud issue oh, gosh, um, yes. where it's uh, I think a, a senior accountant, maybe the chief financial officer. Had, had embezzled, I think, millions of dollars from Racepoint, um, and, and actually faced facing federal charges, which is, you know, that's a really tough one, um, and, and not something you can really foresee or plan for, no. um, and, and for an agency of that size as well, quite, quite a significant hit. Um, so, you know, something else it's, it's had to, it's had to handle. Um, but yeah, like you said, there are there are. Plenty of capable people out there on the market. Yeah. So we shall watch that one closely. Mm. And uh, what else have we got to talk about? H&K and Ogilvy have completed their North Asian uh, consolidation mm. or integration or whatever yeah. they're calling it this week. Um, after so career has come off to Japan. Don't call it a merger. It's not a merger. They're definitely not merging. They're consolidating yeah, and integrating. Don't call it a merger. It is a merger. Don't call it a merger. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Japan and now North Asia. And we've got the quote at the end of the story there that there are no immediate plans to do this elsewhere, which obviously means that it's probably going to happen yeah. elsewhere in the, yeah. in the not too distant. Within, within two weeks, it will happen. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably yeah, famous that. last I mean, words, isn't it? No immediate like, plans. Same with um, Omnicom PR Group. It's always the, the classic response. We are not considering this for any other markets. David Gallagher is going to be on the phone to us after this podcast, <laughs> taking issue. Um, no, I think. Um, I mean, look, I think I think that actually is 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 honest when people say that. But of course, um, things change very quickly mm. in this industry. 
And I think what we're seeing is um, the pressure on publicly listed groups. Mm. Um, and so they are rationalizing their operations, particularly in markets where growth has been difficult to come by and making decisions that they don't they don't need as many agency brands yeah. um, in certain markets. Obviously, we saw this with Omnicom PR Group in Europe, um, merging three agencies uh, in four different markets. Yeah. We saw it with Omnicom PR Group in Singapore. Uh, we saw it with H&K and Ogilvy in, I think, Denmark. Uh, and now, as of... As of this year, we've seen it with HK and Ogilvy in Japan and Korea. Um, I guess the only thing surprising here is that Japan and Korea are both pretty big markets, especially Japan, of course, which um, you know remains the world's second or third biggest economy, depending on how you look at it. Uh, and it seems like a strange place for agencies to be, you know, effectively deciding mm. that they need to uh, reduce their presence rather than expand it. Um, but Japan is quite a unique market. It has always been quite difficult for international agencies. There's only a handful of agencies, whether that's advertising or PR or digital or media, who have succeeded in Japan. Um, and so I suspect it's because of, of that, those reasons, those kind of unique local conditions um, that we're seeing H&K and Ogilvy make that decision. So in Japan, um, H&K will, will, has, has kind of moved into Ogilvy. Uh, and the opposite has happened in Korea, mm -hmm. where Ogilvy has basically moved into H&K. Um, I suppose the big question is where it would happen next. Yes. Um, yeah, I think know, so. Could, I mean, you know the probably... Asian market better than I, a lot better than I do. But um, uh, I just think we're going to see more and more of this consolid yeah. consolidation of brands. Yeah. It's like the, the market in, I mean, you just, you know, you look at London where I'm based and the market's really saturated. Yeah, um, I know. So yeah. I, I, uh, I don't, I don't know where it's going to happen next, but I don't think, you know, the, the career is not the last time we're going to see a couple of Omnicom PR no, it's now. not. And, you know, it's not like you have, have, have kind of noted, it's not just Asia, right? There are many parts of the world, I think, um, where you could throw a dart uh, against a world map mm. and maybe come up with three WPP PR firms or three Omnicom PR firms and ask yourself the question, are all of those brands necessary yeah. in that market? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, um, I don't know how they different. I don't know how you differentiate your offer now within the big um, holding company well, groups. You know how yeah. what 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 makes you know what is the spirit and the um, and the purpose of one brand against another that's basically offering more or less the same thing? Why would you go as a client with one and not the not the other? And, you know, to what extent are they already competing or working together? It's kind of, there's a, there's a lot more to come out in the wash, I think, with the big holding groups and their PR brands. Yeah, that, that question, I think, is one that holding groups don't like to consider too much. Um, because when you think about it, you know, that's that's an existential question. What <laughs> what really does distinguish one agency from another, especially at that end of the industry? Yeah. Um, there, 
yeah, they have different names. Um, but I think a lot of the times it really does come down to who's the specific person running an account. Yeah, it's all down to the relationships in the end. I mean, it's you know, this is Correct. this is a people yeah. business. It's but if all that person changes agency, yeah. does it does it really matter? I mean, you know, it's almost like flags of of convenience at this point. But yeah. <laughs> so, so, so the net fact is yes. I think we're, we're going to see more consolidation um, in some of these markets. I mean, I can I can think of a number of markets in Asia where. I suspect it's being considered actively, um, and the, the the pressure, the financial pressure that holding groups are under mm. uh, in terms of the markets, uh, uh, you know, only, is, is only I think going to to hasten this process. Yeah, I no, it's, I think you're right. But it's interesting that it's not just happening in markets where the economy is struggling. You know, the fact that mm. it's happening in, as you to your point. It, in Japan as well indicates it's it's something bigger than just local pressure. Yeah, I just wondered when you mentioned the UK, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting one because every agency worth its salt has a UK operation. Mm. And yet we know that it's an oversaturated market, that there's a lot of price competition and that there are probably you know, a few agencies at least that don't necessarily need to be there, or at least mm. they don't need to be there kind of on the scale that they currently are there. Mm. Well, yeah, um, be interesting to see. If, if if Brexit does happen, it'll be interesting to see if there's any ooh, global yeah, agencies. That's a whole other conversation, obviously, but... It, yeah. You know, if, if if that does happen, I'm just injecting if they are not being partisan in any way. But if it does happen next March, it'll be very interesting to see whether it is still worth being in London or whether, you know, Frankfurt or Dublin or, or Paris yeah. make more sense um, as, as a European hub. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't it can know. Be, you can be partisan, by the way. That's, that's perfectly last, yeah, acceptable. Last we, we welcome... We welcome partisan views. Well, you know, I think the PR industry as a whole is 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 uh, it's very much hoping that that it it doesn't happen because it doesn't. It's not going to add. Mm. It's just going to cause chaos. But um, if it does, I think there'll be questions about whether London is a a still the most desirable and valid hub for Uh a. For an EMEA, I mean, EMEA only exists in the minds of global companies. Obviously, it's, it's such a broad region. <laughs> it's like there's another existential question: what is EMEA? But um, what is EMEA? What is EMEA? <laughs> it does not exist. But uh, you know, as uh, the the EMEA hub is often London uh, for for global yeah. um, brands and agencies, uh, and whether that will remain the case, and if you know, if, if there's big brands thinking about whether they're going to still need a, a UK HQ. Um, then, then their agencies of all of all colours and denominations will also have to start, you know, wondering the same thing. But you know, we'll we'll see. That's that's you know pure speculation. But we'll we'll just have to see. Yeah. Well, I would welcome it. Actually, I think. Um, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of the London PR industry, but I, I've often thought that it, you know, EMEA has always kind of revolved a little bit too much around London. Mm. Um, and if that can be decentralised, 
I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. No, I don't either. Uh, I think I think uh, it. I think I think it's, it would be a, a very good thing. Much as I mean, London is is brilliant, and some of the best agencies in the world, particularly the smaller mid mid sizes, are, are based here. Um, mm. But you know, for the for the big global groups, it it may not continue to make sense for London to be the the, the, the you know the center of the universe. So yeah, we'll see. Talking okay. about partisan. Talking Ooh. about partisan, shall we have a chat about the PRSA? Yeah, I don't have much time. I've only got a couple of minutes. Okay. I think which may not be enough time to do this this epic saga. <laughs> Everyone go and read Justin. Diana's analysis and Paul's uh, opinion piece. Diana's, <laughs> Diana's magnum opus, uh, in which she plunged herself into the maelstrom of, of trade association politics. And I, I, I have nothing but admiration for her for taking on a, an, an assignment that I think none of us no. was, keen, was keen to take on. Uh, and then Paul, of course, adding his own unique spin um, to what had happened there. Uh, I de definitely would urge everyone to read this story. Um, kind of an instructive fable about where we are, 2018. Mm. Um, you know, I think that PR, PRSA being criticised by its members for perhaps taking on a, a political point of view. Personally, I felt there was nothing there um, that warranted criticism. Yeah. I'll probably get criticised for saying that, but I'm really not that bothered, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, that that's kind of where we are today, I think. You know, just um, this whole idea of... Um, of, of truth is a is a tricky one yeah it is and the, and the polarization as well there's no there's no middle ground anymore there's no there's no discussion mm -hmm. or debate it's kind of dead in the political arena isn't it so it's like you know my way or the highway black or white it's very disheartening i think and it's not good for for discourse generally in social and political discourse that you have you know you can't be you can't be you can't hold both two competing opinions in both hands anymore which is is it's, you know, you've got to come down hard on one side or another. And, it, you know, brands, yeah. are, brands are having the same thing. I mean, you said, CEOs just used to keep the mouth shut and now they've got, they've got to have a view on stuff that is yeah. nothing to do with their core operations. And that's, you know, it's another layer of pressure that you have to kind of formulate an opinion and stick to it. You can't just stay silent anymore, um, uh, which is, yeah. yeah. And I think that's tricky for trade associations. I actually think brands are getting to grips with that quite well for the most part. But I think trade associations are always hamstrung because they've they've always operated on this business of, of you know making decisions by committee mm. um, and by you know consensus and, and often that means making the least offensive decision right yes. um, the, the one that's acceptable to the to the broadest range of people and that's really difficult now because I just don't think you can make a decision that's acceptable to everyone no and um, sometimes and the, that's, uh, yeah I was gonna sorry say yeah. It, if that's the case, then I think rather than trying to please everyone, just um, just ensure you're on the side of of what's right rather than what's convenient. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. I think this, the it's it's really important for trade associations, and you know the uh, the the PRCA are very good at this as well of of taking a view. I think it's important they take a view and uh, and are prepared to kind of justify that view based on. Uh, on, on bigger picture stuff 
than just trying to please everybody because then everything gets watered down and nobody knows what the, the organisation stands for. Yeah, and I think as Paul said in his piece, it's about leadership, right? Yeah. Um, that's what leadership looks like. And I don't want to criticise the PRSA because I think it is actually really difficult for them because these boards and so on, they're not really um, formulated to deliver that kind of leadership. They're set up to deliver consensus. Yes. Um, and I think it's quite difficult. I think the PS, PRCA is quite a unique beast in that respect, um, in that they've, you know, they've, they've, they have accepted that the board will lead, and I think they, they realised that that was what was required, you know, a decade or go, a decade or so ago mm. when when um, Francis Singham took charge, and, that it, and it's been it's been really successful for them. But for other trade groups, I think it's it's still a it's still a journey, as yes, they say. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Well, Maya, great to have you back. Um, great and... to be back. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers.